I was wondering about what to start and looking to the Lord in prayer. I thought what would be pertinent for our church now would be first Thessalonians. And uh, I thought we'd start a series and go through the book of first Thessalonians and probably next, Lord willing, even second Thessalonians as well. So I'm not going to give any introduction because you can get it from any website, uh, just about any website in fact. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who wrote the book because we all know who wrote the book. It's Paul who's writing First Thessalonians. Uh, so the first verse, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. That's the introduction that I'm going to give you. Uh, it's just that Paul wrote this book of First Thessalonians and uh, I'm going to ent entitle the series as Living in light of the Lord's return. Living in light of the Lord's return. Because in this book, or in these two books, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is concentrating so much about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we ought to live in light of the Lord's coming. And I, and I thought it's a very pertinent matter for us to understand as a church as to how to live in light of the Lord's coming as the days, <clears throat> as the days go on. <clears throat> but today we will be looking at a small passage in the first chapter, not at verse 1, but we will be dealing with verses 2 through to 10. So I pray that you would give me your undivided attention because this is a very, very important topic on hand. Uh, three pastors met up at a coffee shop one day and they were talking about all the problems that their churches were going through. I don't know why Sajin is smiling. That, that makes me smile too. But... One of the pastors, uh, all of the pastors uh, common, came to a common problem that, that was infesting all the churches. And what was infesting all the three churches was there were bats in the church flying around everywhere. Bats were flying around. And so one of the pastors said, you know how I solved the problem, but I really couldn't solve it. I tried to solve it. I took a shotgun and I tried to shoot all of them. And it only created uh, holes in the ceiling, but all of them came back. And then the second pastor said, uh, I, I captured and, and all of them, and I, I drove 50 miles outside the city, and I left them there, released them, but they, they, beat, the, they beat me back to church, and they, they all came back to church, is what the second pastor said. The third one said, I don't have such problem at all. I had bats once upon a time, but I don't have such problem at all right now. And they asked him, how did you solve it? And he said, I just baptized and confirmed them, and they, they, they showed up no more. A Chinese guy, a little boy, wanted to find out and know more about how to rate these precious gems, especially jade, the precious gem. And he wanted to understand and realize and study more about how to rate this gem. And so he went to an expert who's, who's an expert in studying gems, especially jade. And the man said, I won't do anything with you. I'll just, I'll just ask you to take a piece, a little bit, little bit of jade, this precious gem, and put it in your hand, hold it for some time as I talk to you about various things. So every day this boy would go to the expert and he would, uh, the expert would put a gem or jade in his hand and he would hold, uh, he would hold his hand and then, and then he would, they would talk about philosophy and theology and all the other stuff for a long time. And then the, a month or two passed and this boy started wondering, what, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I going every day to talk about everything else in the world except this particular stone, J, that I want to learn about? 
And then finally, after two months, this boy goes there, but he was a very venerable teacher, and he didn't want to insult the teacher. And so he goes there and calmly sits. And silently, the teacher slips another gemstone into his hand that is not precious. And immediately, the boy says, he throws it off his hand, and he says, this is not jade. We have a lot of churches around us that are promising that they, are the right, that they have the right stuff and they are the right churches. But what are the characteristics of a true church? And how can we shortlist a few points that will make us realize and distinguish a genuine church from a wrong church? What are the characteristics of a genuine church? Or to make it more personal, if somebody were to accuse CBF, our own church, of something, and they were to call CBF a wrong church or an untrue church, how would we defend and what is the defense that we would offer and give to that person as a defense to, to, to prove that CBF is a genuine or a right church? Now, this is not a new problem because back in the first century, which is about 51 AD, Paul was dealing with a similar problem like this. Because when Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, when he evangelized, he was driven out of town. And a lot of Jews came from the synagogue in Thessalonica, and they started saying that Paul is not a preacher from God, and this is not a genuine church, and, and the Thessalonican conversion was not a genuine conversion at all. And so, today's passage will reveal to us two marks of a genuine church. Paul discusses these two aspects or these two features in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through to 10. Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 2 through to 10. And I'll have the points up here. Uh, Prithi, if you can have the points up here, that'll be helpful as well for all of us. So in verses 2 to 3, you'll see that a genuine church needs to have commendable spiritual productivity. A genuine church needs to have commendable spiritual productivity. Any church that is true must have tangible spiritual growth. Any church that is true must have a tangible spiritual growth. And Paul is commending the Thessalonian church for their spiritual productivity. And notice, he does that in two ways. Firstly, Paul prays for them continually. Paul continually prays for them. You'll see this in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. He prayed for them continually. And secondly, Paul appreciates their walk in the Lord. Paul appreciates their walk in the Lord. Notice verse 3 here. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Three characteristics of these Christians stood out to Paul. First was their work of faith. Paul is mentioning their work of faith. Now the word here used for work is the word ergon in Greek. And that refers to the deed that is done. It refers to an achievement. It refers to an action or a function that, is, that has been done, that has been achieved. So Paul is saying, I know you're saved because your faith is producing some function. I know you're saved because your faith is producing some action. There are righteous deeds in your life, and that means a lot for Christian life. Now, no one is more adamant than the Apostle Paul 
to talk about the fact that justification is by faith and by faith alone. And he's very clear about it in the book of Romans. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 20, in the book of Romans, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He's very clear about it. There is nothing we can do to, to be justified before God. There is no work, no good work, no credential that can justify us before God is what Paul says. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other, word, in other words, what Paul is saying here is that salvation is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. You are justified before God only on the basis of faith. However, the same Apostle Paul who harps on the doctrine of justification by faith also talks about the fact that if it is a genuine faith, you will automatically produce works. A genuine faith automatically will produce righteous deeds and good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you should walk in them, which God has created beforehand that you should walk in them. And so the Thessalonians clearly revealed to Paul in their lives that their faith did produce action. Now here's the point. What distinguishes a genuine faith from a counterfeit one is the result that the genuine faith produces. It is only a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that produces a result called action or good works. And it is that thing that Paul saw in, Galatian, uh, in, in the Thessalonian church and he's saying that I saw your work, that I, I saw your work of faith. A true saving faith is always revealed in how we live our lives. You cannot divorce faith from works at all in the Christian life. You can never say, I have faith in God, but it doesn't affect my life. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it affects the way you think, it affects the way you talk, it affects the way you behave, it has to affect all of you being completely. And Paul here is talking about a faith that works. If you and I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to have righteous deeds that are a result of the faith that we have placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith must have works. That's the first thing that Paul is talking about, uh, work of faith. The second thing he talks about here is a love that labors. He's talking about a love that labors. Paul says, I know and I remember your labor of love. I know and I remember your labor of love. Now, while the word ergon, which is the Greek word for work, means the deed or the achievement or the function of something, labor here, the word Greek word here used, means the effort that is put into the achievement of something. Not just the work that is done, but the, the effort that is put into the achievement of something. The effort that is expended to work something. So what Paul is saying here is that these Thessalonians were not just having a result of their faith, which is works, but they were also having a labor of love, which is they were prompted by love for the Lord, and they were exerting all they could to work for the Lord. Anybody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ really with all their heart 
will have, and anybody who's saved will have this labor of love. We exert with all our hearts in labor for our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here, that a saved person is not just known, or the Thessalonians were not just known by the work that, were produ- that was produced because of their faith, they were also known by the labor of love that they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he mentions a hope that perseveres. He mentions a hope that perceives. Verse 3c. Paul says that the Thessalonian election is known by a hope that perceives or an endurance that perceives. He calls it the steadfastness of hope or the endurance of hope as well. They never lost their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They never bailed out. They were always steadfast. Now, what do I mean by hope? It's a great word, hope, and it's used everywhere in the New Testament. But what do I mean by hope? It is the anticipation of future glory. Hope is the anticipation of future glory. Every true believer in Jesus Christ has this blessed hope and the glorious appearing of a great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, in Titus 2, Paul is talking about the same thing. He says, the grace of God has appeared and it, and it brings salvation. And what does it do? He says, it instructs us and trains us in godliness. It instructs us to say no to ungodliness. So it is the hope that we have that the Lord is coming back. It is the hope that we have, the future hope that we have that allows us to endure this life, that allows us to go through this Christian life, that makes us, a whole, that makes us say no to ungodliness and lead a holy life. So true believers have a faith that works. True believers have a love that labors. And true believers have a hope that perceives. It doesn't die. It doesn't fade away. It sometimes may be blurred. It sometimes may seem distance, distant, but you never lose hope in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is a hope that perceives. It is amazing to me today that there are people and even Christian teachers who claim that you can be saved and have a faith that doesn't work. You can be You can have a love that doesn't labor, and you can have a perseverance that doesn't endure, or a hope that doesn't endure or persevere. But what Paul is saying here to the the Thessalonians is this, that these three things are characteristic of the Christian life. If you don't have these three things, you're probably not a Christian, and the church is not saved. They are the very reason how Paul would know that the, Thessalonians, that the Thessalonian church was saved. They had a faith that worked, they had a labor of love, and they had a hope that perceived as well. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to take away the assurance of salvation that you have. But what I'm doing here is I am trying to establish that on firm ground here. No person can be sure about his salvation because of one past event that happened in his life. No person can be sure about his salvation just because at the age of five he did something and his mother said he did something. But if you're truly saved, no matter what age you are in, if you're truly saved, you will have, you will have a faith that works. You will have a love that labors and you will have a hope that endures or that perseveres. William Barclay, the New Testament scholar, says this, the triad of faith, hope, and love is the quintessence of the God-given life in Christ. The triad of faith, hope, and love is a quintessence of the God-given life in Christ. 
So Paul commends the Thessalonian church for their spiritual productivity. Paul commends the Thessalonian church for their spiritual productivity, and he talks about three things. He talks about a faith that works, a love that labors, and then a hope that perseveres. We need to have a commendable spiritual productivity for us to be called a genuine church. If you and I have to defend CBF, if you and I have to say that our church is genuine, we need to have commendable spiritual productivity, just like the Thessalonians did. Now, we could say a lot of things about a church which are good. We have a good, uh, if I, in fact, we have a great music team. We have, uh, we have a good and committed set of people who come and do the, the setup work. We have good elders. We have good deacons as well. And then we have an okay set of preachers as well in the church. We have a lot of meetings in the church that are going on as well. However, we, even if we are spiritually productive in all of these areas of life, of the life of the church, may I say this to you? You and I need to concentrate, even as singles, you and I need to concentrate on something that our church may be lacking at this point, which is family life. You and I need to concentrate so much on the families of our church and only if we as a church can have godly and healthy families will we be a really spiritually productive church. Here is what Joseph C. Ulrich in his book Lifestyle Evangelism states. He states this, listen to me carefully. The two greatest forces in evangelism are a healthy church and a healthy marriage. Did you hear that? The two greatest forces in evangelism today are a healthy church and a healthy marriage. The two are interdependent. You cannot have one without the other. The Christian family in a community is the ultimate evangelistic tool in which the beauty of the gospel is readily available. The Christian family in a community today is the ultimate evangelistic tool in which the beauty of the gospel is readily available. And he goes on to say it's the old story. When love is seen, the message is heard. When love is seen, the message is is heard. Now, is there a difference between a family in which everyone is a Christian and a Christian family? Is there a difference between a family in which everyone is a Christian and a Christian family? Yes, there is. It takes more than being born again on the part of each member of the family to be a Christian family. A Christian family is a family where relationships with each other are patterned after the way God communicates and relates with his children. In a healthy family, the parents provide an observable model of what it means to be made in God's image. Family is where we learn the importance of growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and loving him more and more. Family is where we learn to be what a man is. Family is where we learn what it is to be a woman. Family is where we learn how to relate with each other. Family is where we learn about intimacy. Family is where we learn about decency and how to talk to other people. Family is where we learn about several things about faith. Family is where we learn where our intellectual, moral, and other boundaries are as well. It's a place where truth is lived out and not just where truth is spoken about. How do you define a broken family? And I've been thinking about this for several days now. How do you define a broken family? 
It starts with the role of, a, the, of the head of the house, the husband. Families are broken by men and women who don't assume and fulfill their God-given roles. Families are broken by men and women who don't assume and fulfill their God-given roles. And if we as a church, and if we in CBF have to have strong, healthy, and godly families that shows our spiritual productivity to the outside world, if you and I need to have, or if our church needs to have strong families, we need to start first with the word of God that tells a man to be a man and assume spiritual leadership in the home. I know a pastor that I shall leave unnamed. And I've known him for over 20 years now to talk about his family here, but I'll leave him unnamed. Oh, I wish there was a fan here, seriously. I don't know why preachers are not thought about here. <laughs> Anyway, you understand what I'm saying, right? When you stand up here. I'm sorry. Uh, this pastor, I've known him for over 20 years now, and uh, he is an amazing preacher. He knows the word very well. And he has planted several churches in the area that he is working as well, or around the area where he is serving. But I've, talk, I've talked to his wife several times, and his wife... Whenever I've talked to her, she only had complaints about how he is in the house. And it's vice versa. And you talk to the pastor, he'd only have complaints about how the wife is in the house. And I'm not saying this glibly. I say this with concern. It is no surprise to me, and I know the church as well. I've, I've spoken there probably over 10 times in the church. It, it, it comes as no surprise to me that many families in the church are broken and they have unhealthy relationships. If truth doesn't work inside the home, why are we surprised it doesn't work outside the home? If truth doesn't work inside the home, why are you surprised when it doesn't work outside the home? If we can't help two people to function biblically in their marriages, how can we expect the same two people to function biblically when kids come along and it becomes a family? And when the family cannot function and think biblically, how do you expect that family to come and worship when a lot of families get together on a Sunday morning? It doesn't magically happen. It only happens when you go back to the principles that God has given us. And may I say this to you, and I say this with concern. If you're part of CBF, and most of you are, you know where your family stands. You know the health of your family, as I know the health of my family. And if it's gone, something has gone wrong and something has gone awry, be willing to admit it. Before God, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and be willing to admit that something has gone wrong before a correction could be made by you. Or, if you know of any families in church that are going wrong, make a commitment right now, not when you go home, but make a commitment right now to pray about those families. And please realize... Any help you want to give them must be bathed in prayer, must be rooted and grounded in scripture, must be supported by a sound and theological foundation, and the vision must be supported by the church as well. Any help you want to give them must be bathed in prayer, must be rooted and grounded in scripture, must have a strong theological foundation, and must be supported by the church as well. CBF, let us channelize our energies both individually and as a church, at least for the next few months, into building healthy families in our church. 
refusing to give priority to making strong families in our church ensures that we'll always be dealing with people who are weak. We'll always be dealing with people who are weak if we don't give priority to building strong families in church. Because one vital sign of a genuine church is the health of marriages and health of families. And if you and I want to be spiritually productive as a church, we need to have a vital sign called strong families in our church. So in verses 2 and 3, we saw that a genuine church needs to have commendable spiritual productivity. Paul makes it very clear by talking about three Christian virtues. He talked about faith, he talked about hope, and then he talked about love as well. And in a church, in a genuine church, the expectation is this, that faith would work and that love would labor and that hope would persevere and endure as well. That's the first point that Paul is talking about, what is the mark of a genuine church. Now in verses 4 through to 10, they give us a second characteristic of a genuine church. And these verses say that a genuine church needs to be sure about the evidences of their salvation. A genuine church needs to be sure about the evidences of their salvation. Now Paul lists the evidences of Thessalonian salvation here. He looks to the past and remembers the encounter he had with them and how they were saved. Now he's not talking about the moment when he preached the gospel or the moment of the conversion. He's rather talking about what happened as a result of the con- conversion and as a result of the preaching and what started from there and, and is continuing to this day in the life of the Thessalonians. So the first thing that Paul lists here is that Paul's gospel came with power and conviction. Verses 4 and 5. Paul's gospel came with power and conviction. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for a gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, Paul is describing here not the experience of the Thessalonians. Rather, Paul is talking about the experience of the preachers who preached to them, preached to them, namely Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He is saying to them, a gospel that we preached did not just come to you in word. It came to you in power and in Holy Spirit and with conviction. And this is an evidence that your salvation is real. Now listen carefully, please. Paul is not saying that you had such an experience. Paul is talking about the experience that the preachers had in preaching the gospel. And he's talking about the genuinity of the conversion of the people that he preached to. Because I sensed in my spirit that God was moving in my preaching, I was very sure that God who is moving in my preaching, whom I'm able to sense in my preaching, is the very God who is going to save the souls that I'm preaching to. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that he felt the power of God and he felt the energy of God when he was preaching the gospel to the people in Thessalonica, And he said, because I could feel the energy, I could feel the power, I know that your salvation is real and that your salvation is genuine. Now, this is a very thrilling and strange concept. It's only mentioned once here in the entire New Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about it elsewhere. That, and the principle is this. If you've sat under convicting Holy Spirit-anointed preaching, 
your salvation is probably more genuine than the salvation of the person who sat under slack preaching. Now, there are people who have sat under very fleshy preaching and people who talk about your psychology with just the name of God in that, and they think they're Christian because they've only listened to that kind of a preaching. But may I say this to you? There is a greater probability for people to be saved who've sat under great preaching and a powerful preaching, a preaching with a conviction of the Holy Spirit and with power that Paul is talking about here. And then you know that you're dealing with reality. So Paul is saying that the very experience of the preachers the very experience of the preachers is an indication that the congregation is saved. When you as a preacher feel the power of God in your preaching, then you're probably dealing with reality because they are preaching, the, uh, the people that you're preaching to are sitting under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Then Paul adds in verse 5, he says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now he's He's not just talking about the quality of preaching here. He's also talking about the quality of life they live to back up the kind of preaching that he preached. He's saying, it is my life that is showing the kind of preaching that I'm preaching. And he's not just talking about powerful preaching. He's talking about powerful preaching and powerful preachers' lives as well. And so he's saying that these two go together, and that is a great affirmation to our message. The second evidence that he states is in verses 6 through to 8. And he says that the Thessalonians received the gospel and followed Paul's pattern. Look at verses 6 through to 8. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, and having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we need not say anything about it. Now in these verses, he moves from his own experience. He talks about his own experience first, and then he moves to the experience of the Thessalonian church. And he says this in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. What is the best sign that you're converted? What is the best sign that you are a genuine church? You become an imitator of Paul and of the Lord. And if that doesn't say it, I don't know what else does. You become an imitator of Paul and the Lord. And Paul is saying, I know, you're a I know your Christianity is real. I know your conversion is genuine because you became an imitator of me and of the Lord. The Thessalonians imitated Paul both in word and in deed. They imitated Paul both in word and in deed. Now, here's a very strange word used by Paul here. The Greek word used there is the word mimeti, from where we get the word mimic, or little copies. So these Thessalonians became little copies of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, it didn't take too long for that to happen. It happened right away because when Paul was writing Thessalonians, Paul was just there a few weeks and then he was gone for a few months and then he, had, he wrote this letter and just in a few months, the Thessalonian church were little copies of Paul himself and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Robert Thomas, who teaches in the Master's Seminary, he wrote a brilliant commentary on the first Thessalonians and he says this, the notion of imitating God and Christ applies especially to three things. It applies to holiness, 
It applies to love, and it, it applies to suffering. The notion of imitating God and Christ applies to three things, he says. He says it applies to love, it applies to holiness, and it applies to suffering. And those are the three ways in which we are like Christ. And next, in the middle of verse 6, Paul says this, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's another mark that identifies the elect. They have the joy of the Holy Spirit. They have the joy of the Holy Spirit. No matter what the circumstances are that they're going through, no matter what the situation is that they're going through, they always have the joy of the Holy Spirit because it is a joy given by God himself. And Paul says, you have received the word, which is you receive the gospel. And he looks back at their conversion and their response, and he says, when the word came to you, you received it in much suffering and in tribulation. So even when they were suffering so much, the Thessalonians, they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit, as, as Paul preached with conviction. Now, you remember what happened to the Thessalonians. Remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul was there to evangelize and preach the gospel. And then he was driven out of town and he goes to Berea. And then the Thessalonians follow him all the way to Berea. And then he's chased out of Berea as well. And he doesn't know what to do. And then he sends, he, he's in Athens and he sends Timothy. And then he gets a report from Timothy and then he writes his letter. But when Paul was not in Thessalonica, there was nobody to support the Thessalonian church. And imagine the kind of persecution that Jews in the synagogue would have given the Thessalonian church. And it is in that kind of a suffering that this gospel was lived out by the Thessalonian church. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, you've endured the same kind of suffering as the churches of God in Judea. And then he compares and says, it's the kind of suffering that comes from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus Christ, who killed the prophets, and who drove us out as well. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. And now notice in verse 7, he says, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the word here, for example, is the word tupos, from which we get the word type, which means exact reproduction. They became model Christians to follow. These people who are imitating Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ became people who are worth imitating as well. Now, I find this very, very surprising, and this really amazes me, because they didn't have an elder in the church. They were just babies in the Lord, just a few months old. There was nobody to pastor them as well. And yet, their growth was so much that they became imitators of not just the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were worth imitating as well. And they were known about, uh, and all the believers talked about them in Macedonia and in Achaia as well. Look at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. I think this is the greatest statement in all of the epistles ever made about the evangelism capabilities of any church. This is the greatest statement ever made in all of the epistles about the evangelism capabilities of any church and the zeal of any church. They were the model church for fulfilling the Great Commission. Because they said, because Paul says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. This is a great statement. It means the word of the Lord, the gospel, has trumpeted forth from you. It just blasted forth from you. It went out in all power and all zeal and all strength so that people had to hear it. And in verse 8 he says, your faith toward God 
has gone forth so that nobody needs to say anything about it. The gospel was proclaimed with conviction. It was blasted forth with the Thessalonian church as a starting point so that nobody, even Paul, needs to say anything about the church and the testimony that they had. So two evidences about the evidences for their salvation. The first thing is Paul preached a gospel with power and conviction. The second thing, the Thessalonians followed Paul in both word and deed. They followed after the pattern of Paul. And then there's a third evidence that he mentions about the conversion. And that is in verses 9 and 10. And they say that the Thessalonians remain steadfast in the apostolic preaching. The Thessalonians remain steadfast in the apostolic preaching. Look at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Verse 9 says, they themselves give the kind of reception. They themselves report about the kind of reception that you gave us. Now, the reception that the Thessalonians gave Paul was known everywhere by now. That is the kind of reception they gave. And if you go back to verse 9, he says, I know you're saved, beloved of God. I know you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there has to be a forsaking of something that is evil. There has to be a forsaking of your former ways of life. And these Thessalonians, they forsook the idols and they turned to the living and true God. They didn't just turn to the living God, they turned to serve as slaves the true and the living God. So their complete direction and orientation is changed. John Calvin once wrote this. He said, only the man who has learned to put himself wholly in subjection to God is truly converted to him. Only the man who has learned to put himself wholly in subjection to God is truly converted to him. And the last point, and a beautiful one to finish here. Verse 10, Paul says, you're saved because you're committed for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. Now we all have this blessed hope that I talked about earlier. We have the hope amidst all this suffering and whatever we face in this world that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back physically and bodily. We may believe several things about tribulation. Now, you could be a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or no-trib, or whatever trib. But ultimately, you and I believe in one reality, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, and he will set things straight. And the love of the Lord, the love for the Lord that we have, and the assurance that he is going to come back will make us live a life worthy of his calling. Remember the disciples in Acts chapter 1, they were looking at the jaws agape, and the angel, angels came and said to him, this same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in like manner, like you saw him going to heaven. And that is the hope that we have. And this is a, this is a theme and a concept, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, that is writ large over First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and then we'll study about it in the weeks to come. But they were waiting for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back. They were waiting for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back. And he has been raised from the dead with the power of God, says, says Paul. Now, when you and I, as a church, come here, we ought to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a hope that we have 
in the midst of all of these. And God raised him from the dead. And ultimately, he says, Paul says, who delivers us from the coming wrath. Paul here is talking about God's settled wrath, God's fury, God's wrath against sin in judgment. And Paul is saying that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, ultimately, he will deliver us from the coming wrath of God. He will give us eternal life. He will bring our salvation to consummation. And then he will deliver us from the wrath of God completely. So what's the point of this morning's passage? This morning's passage basically says this, that a genuine church needs to have commendable spiritual productivity and clear evidences for their salvation. A genuine church needs to have commendable spiritual productivity and clear evidences for their salvation. A church that does not have tangible spiritual growth or is unclear about their salvation may not be a true church. I thank you for your patience. I struggle with my voice today. I don't know what happened to it, but thank you for your patience. And let's close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your word today. We want to thank you for your scripture that, is, that comes alive to us, O Lord. Even though it was written some 2,000 years ago to a church that is far away from us, we still have the principles and the word that speak to us today. And we want to thank you for talking to us about what a genuine church ought to be like. We want to thank you, O Lord, for the evidences that are clear that we need to look at as the evidences of salvation. We want to thank you for the life of Paul, O Lord, that speaks to us as well. And we want to thank you for the life of the Thessalonian church that is a model church for us. Help us as a church in our walk with you. Help us to have families that are holy and healthy and godly, O Lord. And our church should comprise of families that are godly. And together, we all should work together like the Thessalonian church for the glory of your name. We submit the rest of the activities into your hands as well. Help all of us even as we drive back home and give us a safe journey. We submit things into your hands. In Jesus' name I pray.